Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the first of this year's Philippe Comment lectures. I'm Arne Westard. I'm the director of LSE Ideas, and it's a great pleasure for me to welcome all of you here. And, of course, in particular, to welcome Professor Matthew Connolly from Columbia University, who is our Philippe Comment Chair in History and International Affairs in LSE Ideas for, for this year. Now, of course, Matt stands in a long line of very distinguished um, lecturers for, uh, for this chair, Philippe Romand professors. Um, last year, we had Timothy Snyder from Yale University, who, who was here. Before that, Anne Applebaum, Ram Guha, Neil Ferguson, Jill Capel, Chen Jen, and as the inaugural chairholder, Professor Paul Kennedy from Yale University. I think it's very hard to find a more distinguished group of historians working in the field today when you put them all together. So we have been lucky. Um, we've also been reasonably good, I think, in attracting talent. And that's proven uh, to me very much so by uh, Matt being here this year. Now, all of this, as many of you will know, is thanks to the vision and generosity of Emmanuel Roman, who is here today, who has funded this chair and helped set it up. He's done much more than funding it. He's also been one of those who've had the vision for how the chair could develop the various fields and areas that we may want to, to look at. And I often say, and it is actually true, Emmanuel reads more history than what I do. How he finds the time to do it, I don't know, but he certainly, he certainly does. Now, we have a series of four lectures uh, for this term and next term in this series. Um, tonight, uh, we'll focus on the U.S. government's commitment to transparency before the 20th century, and setting the stage for this whole set of lectures. On Tuesday, the 2nd of December, we have a lecture entitled Open Government in the Age of Total War, and our two lectures in Lent term will be on the Cold War and the culture of secrecy, and then finally on the 17th of March, crowdsourcing, surveillance, and the area of Synopticon. You have to come to the last one to find out what that is about. <laughs> now, Matt is one of the historians who I most admire. And the reason for that is twofold. First and foremost is immense versatility as an historian. I mean, he's someone who works in many different fields and often does so simultaneously. Um, he, um, his most... Uh, uh, well-known books uh, is the uh, uh, first main book that he published, The Diplomatic Revolution, Algeria's Fight for Independence and the Origins of the Post-Cold War Era, uh, which won, I think, something like five or six prizes when it, when it came out. What's great about that book is that Matt takes something that we think we know a great deal about, which is the Algerian Revolution, and looks at how it influenced international community in a broad sense. That's where the title comes from. That's what meant by a diplomatic revolution. That this was a revolution that took as its stage not just what was happening in Nigeria or in North Africa, but a new way of trying to approach international affairs that broke out of the Cold War boundaries uh, on a global scale, that emphasized international organizations, that emphasized working through solidarity movements in various parts of the world, but also working with the states with which the new Algerian leadership had to have a close contact. 
It is a book about a new kind of diplomacy breaking through in the late 1950s and early 1960s, which I think in Matt's view points forward to then how the Cold War ended and the changes that took place much later. It's quite a phenomenal book. It's a deeply revisionist book in many ways and one that I would encourage all of you to read. His most recent book is called Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population. And it was chosen as one of the best books of the year, both by The Economist and The Financial Times, and I think at least one other major newspaper. There are good reasons for that, and they lie in the title, Fatal Misconception. The idea that governments would be able, for good purposes and with good results, to control human reproduction. <coughs> Matt's point is that most of these schemes have failed. Not only have they failed, but they've been to the detriment of the countries and the societies in which they have been put into place. They've also, of course, uh, signaled in many societies crimes that have been committed against individuals in terms of choice, against families, but also strengthening of the state in terms of the matter of human reproduction that has had very negative consequences in many countries. That's a controversial book, as I think most of the things that Matt writes are are controversial. Uh, But it's also a very, very significant book, because this is a historian who looks at this in terms of long-term historical development, but also tries to draw the implications of that historical knowledge for what is going on today. And that's, of course, very much what LSE Ideas has been about, to try to look at contemporary international affairs in light of the past. So in that sense, Matt is the perfect Philippe Romain professor for us. He is an historian, deeply steeped in historical methodology and historical findings, but he is also someone who cares very, very much about today's world and about how the future is going to look. And that is indeed the reason, I think, why he has emphasized issues of freedom of information, uh, of information control, and about attempts to try to make use of various forms of information for state purposes and for those who are opposing the state. So we are very much looking forward to this series of lecture. Matthew, welcome to the LSE. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Arna. Um, thank you, um, Manuel Roman. Uh, I had the great pleasure of uh, meeting him just a few moments ago. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. Um, and I want to uh, talk to you tonight about um, a subject that I've, I've gotten quite um, obsessed with over the last couple of years. This is uh, the subject of official secrecy. Um, I'm not going to talk about UFOs tonight, I don't think. Uh, We may get to that eventually. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who are, in a way, obsessed with official secrecy. Um, But one of the things I've been struck by is is how it is that um, how it is that that obsession is not typically informed by an understanding of official secrecy in the historical sense, you know, in terms of of where it's coming, where it's coming from, and, and how that might help us understand where it's going. Um, But to start with, I thought I would um, take us back in history um, and take us to a spot that uh, for many Americans is is almost sacred ground. Uh, Many of you, uh, even if you're not an American, you may have even uh, stood in this spot. Uh, This is the rotunda of the U.S. National Archives in Washington, D.C. And if you stand in line, you can see the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that is the first ten amendments to the Constitution. 
And you can see all of them lined up in a row. This is just the Constitution, but if you're there, you can see the Declaration and the Bill of Rights uh, flanking it on either side. You can see them all lined up in a row, and they're, they're lit up, um, and they're almost translucent. And the ink has faded almost to the point where you can no longer read many of those words. But part of the appeal, I think, for many people, even if they can't quite read the words, even if they only stand there for a few moments, is uh, the incredible physical security of this place. Uh, it's a, a temple in some ways, but it's also something of a, of a bank vault, um, even in, in the literal sense. Because while these documents are on display during the day, uh, every night um, they are lowered down, deep underground, and they are encased in a 50-foot, 55-ton steel vault, a vault that's meant to withstand, withstand the blast of a nuclear bomb. And at the first hint of danger, any one of 35 guards can activate this mechanism, and the documents will disappear from view and be enclosed in two massive steel doors. And I remember when I was here as a little boy, you know, that was the thing that seemed really fascinating to me. But over the years, I came to realize that it's really quite a strange place when you think of it. Because on the one hand, if you're standing there, you have this sense of democratic transparency uh, where all the world you know, can look and see this physical instantiation of the American Republic. But at the same time, you feel this acute sense of vulnerability this feeling that all of it could suddenly disappear at a moment's notice. And you begin to realize that this, this display case is really just a, a series of small windows, small windows into a very large vault, <clears throat> leaving the rest of us on the outside to live or die by our own devices. So my title might strike you as, as a little bit strange, this, is, uh, this lecture, The Radical Transparency of the American Republic, is, is part of a series on the rise and fall of official secrecy. And I know for many of you, um, the U.S. nowadays represents radical opacity, the very opposite of transparency. And in fact, it's true. One of the reasons I, I've gotten a little bit obsessed with this subject is because, as we'll see in a moment, official secrecy really does seem to be growing out of control. There are almost a million Americans now who have top-secret security clearances. That's more people than live in the District of Columbia. By the government's own estimates, uh, the rate at which they classify information is increasing exponentially. So this is uh, one effort to quantify this. It's put out by the Information Security Oversight Office, which is a very tiny and underfunded oversight agency within the National Archives and Records Administration. And what it's showing you is how, by the government's own estimates, the rate at which these people are classifying information is increasing exponentially. So in 2011, it was 95 million times. Actually, it was uh, 2012 that it went up to 95 million times. And this has quadrupled the figure from four years ago. And what this means, if you break it down, is that every three seconds, some official or private contractor decides that what they're doing must be kept secret from the outside world. So how does it make sense to speak of the decline and fall of official secrecy? Now, the fact is, it's increasingly clear that the government itself doesn't know what it is doing or what it should do with all this secret information that it's amassed from around the world. I was at a panel uh, this year with the Chief of Records Management from the National Archives and Records Administration, 
And he'd just been working at the job for a few years. He'd come from a university library. And he said that after a short while, he came to realize, um, and he referred to a movie that many of you know, uh, in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said he came to realize, as he said, that Spielberg got it right. Spielberg got it right. This is what happens to the top secret information in the United States. It's lost because they don't know what to do with it all. And with the revelations of Edward Snowden, we've come to realize that even the National Security Agency itself still hoovering up every communication that it can legally intercept, and then some. Even the NSA itself is increasingly overwhelmed. One of his uh, leaks uh, showed that the NSA budgets $50 million a year just for basic research on the problem of information overload. And by the way, this is more money than the whole federal government spends on declassification. Now, overall, the U.S. government allocates some $12 billion a year to protect state secrets. $12 billion for armed guards, retinal scanners, and polygraph machines, an increasingly vain effort to thwart whistleblowers and spies. So rather than some secret vault, America's secrets are stored in countless warehouses and data centers, too vast and too numerous, even for the government to account for all they contain or stop all of these secrets from leaking out. Now, it's, if you don't believe me, you can read the work of watchdog groups who have pointed out how it is that repeatedly they've found things like sniper manuals um, and guides to creating high explosives with garden variety materials sitting on the open shelves of the National Archives. So the government itself is increasingly incapable of protecting truly dangerous information. And for all the tax dollars spent to protect official secrets, archivists and historians have been discovering that massive numbers of these records have been corrupted or lost forever. Now, several years uh, of the Bureau of Intelligence reporting of the State Department, hundreds of thousands of diplomatic cables from the 1970s have been lost because the government has not been able to preserve these electronic records. Now, some of you may think, well, are they really lost? Perhaps they were destroyed? And indeed, there are notorious cases uh, in which the Central Intelligence Agency especially has destroyed uh, historically significant materials, most recently the torture videos of al-Qaeda al detainees. But most of this loss is occurring simply because of the relentless accumulation of data. The relentless accumulation of data is simply overwhelming the records managers and archivists. The bloody infantry of the information revolution is increasingly overwhelmed with the task that they face. So for instance, a few months ago, it was revealed through a congressional inquiry that the Internal Revenue Service cannot produce email from even two years ago. Now this is faulty record keeping, right? But that's just the beginning. And we really don't know where it's gonna end. So specialists in the field call this bit rot. Bit rot is what happens uh, when you have decades-old software uh, sitting on decades-old hardware, all of it accumulating over time and none of it uh, being protected. And what it means, in effect, is that what many of us fear is the national security state is developing a collective case of Alzheimer's. Now, for all the information that it mindlessly hoards and hides, 
There have been all too many instances in which the official mind has proven incapable of using what intelligence it has, such as failing to recognize the tourists arriving from Yemen as a terrorist it had already put on a no-fly list. Now, beyond the difficulty in recalling recently acquired information, an early symptom of the disease, officialdom is now losing its long-term memory. It's failing to recognize old friends like Washington, Madison, Lincoln, and Wilson, who are committed to the principle of open government and committed as well to preserving the historical legacy so future generations could learn from it. Now, the recent episodes of incontinence, the embarrassingly massive leaks of Private Manning and Edward Snowden, these were entirely predictable. So too was the defensive and irritable response, the increasing paranoia, and even the anxiety to follow people around wherever they go. So what does all this secrecy really amount to in the end? If there are thousands of closely guarded file cabinets, but no finding aids to figure out what lies inside. What if those classified hard drives, countless numbers of them, are filled with corrupted and unreadable computer files? What is the cachet in a security clearance if any army private or private contractor can access millions of secret documents and share them with all the world? And if everything is really secret, top secret, is anything actually secret? Now, these are hard questions, and I can't pretend to have answers to all of them. Um, but what I think we can do um, is begin to get past um, some of the platitudes um, that we've received in recent years. Um, now, I'm building on the work of others before me um, to give them credit. There have been more than a dozen congressional investigations, presidential boards, departmental task forces, all of them having agreed that the system for guarding state secrets in the United States is dysfunctional and self-defeating. Whistleblowers, investigative reporters have repeated, repeatedly risked imprisonment on behalf of the public's right to know. And great philosophers from Jeremy Bentham to J.S. Mill to Max Weber have hypothesized and theorized about official secrecy. And I find this work to be quite illuminating and provocative. And some of these theories seem, on the face of it, quite compelling. So Weber, for instance, one of his more famous uh, insights, argued that, and I'm quoting, every bureaucracy strives to increase the superiority of its position by keeping its knowledge and intentions secret. But as a historian, I ask myself, how do we explain why at certain times and places there have been intense struggles over setting limits to official secrecy? And why is it we have such tremendous variation between different departments and agencies, even within the same government? So in this case, it's the number of documents or pages, rather, pages reviewed by each department and agency on the top in the blue bar, and then it's the number that they choose to declassify and release. With the CIA, you can see that it, it's a tiny fraction, right? And they put aside, actually, all of the records to do with covert operations. These are only uh, documents related to its research and analysis. So how do we explain this kind of variation at the same time within the same government? Now, another theory um, that uh, I find you know, to be important and an important starting point is by Jeremy Bentham, um, who argued, and it's something that many, many more people have argued ever since, that, quote, without publicity, no good is permanent. Under the auspices of publicity, no evil can continue. But think about it. 
Is that really true? Is it really true that without publicity, no good can be permanent? Code breaking, one of the most closely kept secrets of the Second World War, was kept for many years after the end of that struggle. And it was an important reason why it is the Nazis were defeated when they were, and not years later. Now, is it really true that no evil can continue with publicity? In fact, uh, the American public have repeatedly applauded um, things that the U.S. government has done uh, by nefarious means, through subterfuge, when these things have proven profitable. And I'll be talking about some examples of that tonight. So what I think we truly lack, and what I want to try to contribute, is a historical understanding of official secrecy. We've not asked or answered some of the simplest, but I think most important questions. To begin with, how did we get here? How is it that the government itself can no longer control official secrecy? Even as more and more of us are beginning to feel that we have no secrets. Historians who might have grappled with these questions have faced an insuperable obstacle. We have lacked all but fragmentary evidence about how official secrecy actually works or fails to work as a system. Because it's not just that the US government keeps a lot of secrets. It does not confirm or deny the very existence of covert operations. It will not reveal the sources or methods it uses to gather information even decades after the fact. And it routinely disregards even its own legal mandates and administrative criteria that are meant to set limits to official secrecy. And all the while, American courts have routinely denied petitioners' requests for answers, accepting at face value government claims um, that revealing more would risk national security. Now, this is radical secrecy. It's secrecy about secrecy. And if you believe that knowledge is power, it means that we don't even know how powerless we have become. But what if? What if historians teamed up with data scientists? What if we started to use some of the tools of data mining and surveillance and turn them back onto the government? What if we managed to take the millions of declassified documents, more and more of them available in digital form, and started using these kinds of data mining techniques to make out patterns in official secrecy? I'm just going to show you a few images you know, from, from that future, uh, that future lecture I'll be giving. Um, but it's, it's where all this is going. What if we could, for instance, uncover covert surveillance programs like Operation Boulder, precisely because they leave statistically significant gaps in the public record? What if we could compare them, those millions of, of digitized, declassified documents, with hundreds of thousands of other documents that are otherwise still secret, but where we have the metadata, the metadata that would allow us to train algorithms and high-performance computers to reveal what is missing? What if we could analyze declassified State Department cables the same way the National Security Agency treats foreign signals intelligence and use traffic analysis to reveal informant networks and undiscovered events? <coughs> and what if we could identify the people and places that are particularly likely to be redacted in sanitized documents or predict the content of blacked out text or identify the authors of anonymous government documents? Now, all of these things are now feasible, and I'll be discussing them in, in future lectures. 
And in fact, I think they're actually inevitable. Now that all this data exists and now that we have these tools, in many cases tools that were developed for purposes of surveillance, I think it's inevitable that they're going to start to be used for purposes of increasing transparency. Now all these things pose very interesting political and ethical questions, and I won't be dealing with them tonight. But I do think it's at least possible that we may begin to see the end of the story, the end of secrecy as we know it or rather the end of secrecy as we don't know it. If we can at least make out the broad patterns and what kinds of information is classified, it would be the end of secrecy about secrecy, and perhaps the beginning of a new era of open and accountable government. Um, and that's when I realized that I left half my notes over here. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what was on the table. Like, it's almost as if I meant to be that. Um, all right. So, where to? Uh, so, what I want to talk about now is how all this began. Um, I want to go back to the beginning. Um, seeing that rise and fall requires first um, to go back um, to see how things start. Now, the U.S. national security state has become notorious, but it didn't start out that way. Now, tonight I want to describe how, in some ways, the founders of the American Republic were radical by contemporary standards in their commitment to transparency. Now, during the Civil War, for instance, 150 years before WikiLeaks, the State Department was publishing wartime diplomatic correspondence just months or even weeks after it was written. And in a cutthroat, cutthroat arena of empires and principalities, the U.S. was a radical example to the rest of the world. Now, that began to change in the era of total war, as I'll be discussing in the next lecture, with World War I, the passage of the Espionage Act, and even more so with the Second World War. But it wasn't really until the decades-long conflict with the, with the Soviet Union that one can truly speak of a culture of secrecy, a culture of secrecy that served many hidden agendas where keeping information even from the president would make it an institutional asset, where security clearances could be used to police behavior and to, uh, and to def uh, deter deviance, and where senior officials who leak classified information could be rewarded by gaining even higher office. Now, my last lecture next March, I'm going to try to explain how official secrecy became unmanageable with massive leaks, an unprecedented number of prosecutions, and a system of declassification that is starting to break under the strain. I'm also going to describe how it is that with millions of these documents that have been released, we have opportunities to detect patterns in official secrecy and perhaps even preserve the principle of open government. But first, how did we get here? I'm going to be talking mainly about the United States, uh, though I'll be making connections and comparisons with other countries. And one reason for this is that there's a sizable literature on official secrecy, but mainly for other countries, and especially for the UK. There's nothing like this in the United States. Now, in the US, what scholarship we have is mainly the work of law professors, and it's mainly from the 1970s. Uh, this is when Richard Nixon's use and abuse of executive privilege created a constitutional crisis. But there are many problems when lawyers act as historians. They tend to use history to make a case. They use history as ammunition and arguments for or against the president's right to withhold information from Congress or the public. Now, some lawyers 
law professors pointed out that there was no constitutional basis for this. There's nothing in the Constitution itself that provides for presidential uh, privilege. Now, only Congress, in fact, according to the Constitution, has a constitutional right uh, to withhold some information from the public and even from the president. And in fact, during the revolution, the Continental Congress was actually relatively open. It started publishing its proceedings uh, during the revolution. In 1778, it even provided for the publication of historical documents. In the midst of a fight for its own survival, they said money aside to preserve a record uh, for future generations to record this history. Now, Congress, for its part, was uh, vigorous in exercising oversight over the executive branch, uh, beginning uh, when the republic was founded during George Washington's first administration. And the first crucial test came in 1791, uh, when an Indian Confederacy annihilated virtually the entire American field army in Ohio. Uh, this is one of the unfortunate generals uh, in that battle. Uh, the new Congress launched an investigation. They demanded to know how the force had been raised, led, or misled, uh, how it had been provisioned or how it wasn't provisioned. And after consulting with his cabinet, Washington agreed to produce copies of every document that they asked for even though he knew at risk exposing the incompetence of his War Department. Now, he realized that the new republic would face even greater dangers if it did not learn from its mistakes. Now, in 1822, just eight years after the British had torched the White House and driven then-President James Madison from Washington, he offered a famous argument for this founding principle. Here's what he said. A popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance, and a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives. Now, President Andrew Jackson professed not to have any secrets whatsoever. When he was told that one of his servants might be selling his private papers, he gave the following reply. They are welcome, sir, said he, to anything they can get out of my papers. They will find them in there, among other things, false grammar and bad spelling. But they are welcome to it all, grammar and spelling included. Let them make the most of it. Our government, sir, is founded upon the intelligence of the people. It has no other basis. Now, a decade later, President James K. Polk argued that the executive branch had no secrets when it came to rooting out corruption. And here's what he said. If the House of Representatives, as the grand inquest of the nation, should at any time have reason to believe that there has been malversion, malversation in office by any improper use or application of public money by a public officer, and should think proper to institute an inquiry into the matter, all the archives and papers of the executive departments, public or private, would be subject to the inspection and control of a committee of their body, and every facility in the power of the executive be afforded to enable them to prosecute the investigation. So these are the kinds of things that lawyers, law professors, marshaled in making the case against executive privilege. But other lawyers, law professors, argued for upholding executive privilege, and they were able to marshal a whole series of counterexamples. In fact, every one of the presidents that I just mentioned, including Washington, Madison, Jackson, and Polk, all of them repeatedly invoked executive privilege in denying Congress access to documents that it asked for. Indeed, the United States itself was conceived in secrecy. 
The Constitutional Convention in 1787 took place behind closed doors with sentries guarding the entrance. The Federalist Papers, the famous and anonymous essays that argued for adopting the Constitution, repeatedly invoked the need for, quote, secrecy and dispatch in justifying broad presidential powers. Now, Washington himself set limits to the information that he would provide Congress, beginning with the personal privacy of himself and his cabinet, especially their financial dealings. Uh, before complying with the investigation of that defeat in Ohio, they first made sure that Congress would not probe, quote, secrets of a very mischievous nature, whether, quote, persons in the government had been dabbling in stocks, banks, etc. So the practice, even the practice of redacting certain documents began during Washington's administration. It began in 1794 when Congress requested access to diplomatic correspondence from the U.S. minister in Paris. The Secretary of State at the time established criteria that still apply today. Uh, they excluded, redacted uh, information that did not seem germane to the issue at hand, but might cause embarrassment. Um, that included frank assessments of the conduct of other countries. It also included any discussion of intelligence sources, sources and methods. All of these things were being redacted from so-called declassified documents in 1794. Now, in all these discussions within the cabinet and when presidents made public statements about these practices, they argued that they had to see after the public good, that in many cases the public good would not be served if they released all of this information. And it was up to the president to decide where the public good resided. Even so, time and again, government officials leaked or openly published normally confidential documents, such as diplomatic correspondence, usually to discredit their enemies. This, too, goes back to the 18th century. In 1796, for instance, the Federalist Party used the revelation that France had demanded bribes from American diplomats to portray their Republican opponents as easy prey to foreign manipulation. This is a cartoon from the period, uh, Property Protected à la Françoise, uh, showing how it is that uh, America was vulnerable um, to this kind of thing and how it is only the Federalists could protect the country. Now, there was nothing in the Constitution that could settle this kind of controversy over executive privilege, because Congress was silent as to this idea, this idea of privilege, and courts did not want to become involved. In a time of national emergencies, such as the Napoleonic Wars, the danger was not merely excessive secrecy or overclassification, but actual repression. Thus, the Federalists took advantage of the electoral victories that followed this affair to pass the Alien and Sedition Laws in 1798, which allowed them to disenfranchise many non-native-born citizens and prosecute those who criticized the government. Now, the only thing that stopped them was a popular backlash, a popular backlash which led to a crushing defeat in the 1800 election, the election of Thomas Jefferson, and the beginning of the end of the Federalist Party. The real limit to official secrecy came from the people. It came from their insistence on the right to know and their determination to punish those who abuse their power. But lest you take any comfort in this idea, more than once, large majorities would approve of secrecy, deception, and extra-constitutional power. 
solely provided that it proved effective and profitable. Now, the best example of this was the Louisiana Purchase. So Napoleon had secretly taken legal possession from Spain of the Mississippi Valley and all its tributaries, this vast territory in green. But he did not, um, facing the British Navy, he did not have the means to actually take physical possession. And he was in need of cash in his war against the British. And so he offered it, all of it, uh, to American negotiators, who were startled, startled at this offer because they, they were there for, uh, for uh, they were there with no idea that anything like it was on offer. And they had no mandate to agree to a purchase on this scale, a scale that would nearly double the territory of the United States. And Jefferson himself worried that he did not have the legal authority to execute the sale. He thought it might be necessary to pass a constitutional amendment to make it legal. But in fact, the great majority of the American public cheered this obvious bargain. Even the Federalists decided to support it. And one senator who had been important in the framing uh, of the Constitution was asked when they were debating the Louisiana Purchase whether the framers would have wanted to limit the size of the new nation with the idea that self-government might not work if the United States became too large. And Governor Morris said that he couldn't remember, but that it didn't matter anyway. All North America must at length be annexed to us, happy indeed if the lust for dominion stopped there. This was the true spirit of the American people, I think, as near as we can discover it in this period. This was transparency of a different kind, this was naked greed. It was even more apparent in time with the growing power of the young republic. In 1844, James K. Polk was elected president on a platform that included the annexation of Texas. And in his inaugural, he tried to reassure foreign observers. Foreign powers do not seem to appreciate the true character of our government. Foreign powers should therefore look on the annexation of Texas to the United States not as a conquest of a nation seeking to extend her dominions by arms and violence, but as the peaceful acquisition of a territory once her own by adding another member to our confederation with the consent of that member, thereby diminishing the chances of war and opening to them new and ever-increasing markets for their products. It wasn't personal, Polk seemed to be saying. <laughs> it was just business. Now, in fact, Polk soon incited another war with Mexico and conquered and annexed half its territory, including California and New Mexico. Now, this was done through transparent subterfuge, such as secretly dispatching U.S. troops into disputed territory to provoke an attack. Now, there were critics, famous critics, but most Americans applauded. So this history of official secrecy in the U.S. is not a simple story of decline and fall from some lofty summit in which a shadowy elite manipulated the masses. And in fact, to the extent that the U.S. had a tradition of open government, it was largely inherited from the British. From the very beginning, the founders referred back to parliamentary precedents, whether in producing information for investigations, publishing their proceedings, or providing basic protections for dissent, such as public trials. These were British traditions. But still, I would argue that in some ways, the U.S. was radically different, and it was radically transparent in other ways that we haven't even talked about yet. But to see that, you have to take a step back. 
I think you have to um, you have to recall what Madison said. Madison said that a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives. Open government is an empty principle unless people hear about what government is doing in their name. Information only has value if more than a tiny privilege can act on it. And a written constitution provides no protection unless people can read and understand it. And in all these ways, Americans were better able to hold government accountable than other people in this period. And this was in no small part because of the tools that government gave them. So even before the revolution, New England colonies required new towns to set up schools. In the 19th century, attendance in public schools began to be compulsory. By the 1820s, there were already several public universities. And in fact, what Madison said, this statement that many people take as the original defense of the freedom of information, was actually an argument for public funding of universities. And this was just the beginning you know, of a long argument that he waged for why it is that people needed to have a knowledge, as he put it, a knowledge of the globe and its various inhabitants if they were to be uh, inhabitants of a republic, the self-governing people. Now, as a result of these kinds of efforts, literacy in the United States was extraordinarily high uh, by the standards of its time. In New England, it was close to 90% of white men by the 1770s. Now, this was when Thomas Jefferson drafted a bill for the education of both boys and girls in Virginia. He said that those entrusted with power have, in time and by slow operations, perverted it into tyranny. And it is believed that the most effectual means of preventing this would be to illuminate, as far as practicable, the minds of the people at large. This uh, is one of the earliest primers that were meant to teach reading and writing in this period. And to put it more simply, um, if you can make it out at the top, um, beginning with the H, he who never learns his ABC forever will a blockhead be. So this was something that people could understand. Um, even five-year-olds could understand. In the early republic, there was an extraordinary amount of information to read. It began in 1792, when by act of Congress, the postal system subsidized the distribution of newspapers. Newspapers were practically free in this period. And they were actually free if you showed up at a post office, right, or a tavern, and started to read one of the many newspapers that were typically on hand. Tocqueville talked about this when he visited the United States. He said that the 13 million Americans probably knew one another and formed a more tight-knit and coherent community communicating one with another than any part or province of France. There were more than four times as many post offices per capita in the early republic compared to England, and almost 20 times as many as in France. John C. Calhoun said that the mail and the press are the nerves of the body politic. And congressmen had the privilege, the franking privilege, of distributing mail for free to their constituents, a, con uh, a privilege that they made full use of. Congress also heavily subsidized the printing of state papers, with editions running into the tens of thousands. In 1816, these state papers included previously confidential documents, some of them just three years old. This was the beginning of what we would now call declassification. So in the early republic, information was not always and everywhere free, but there was an awful lot of information. 
and it was extremely cheap. And this policy had broad bipartisan support. Federalists saw subsidizing the press as a way of extending the national consciousness, while national Republicans saw it as a check on government power. And in this case, the profit motive worked to advance open government. Schools and post offices were an enormous source of patronage. The post office accounted for three-quarters of all employees of the federal government. There were some 8,700 postmasters by the 1840s. And the popularity of the post office, in turn, protected it from overweening state power. So early on, Congress protected the post from interference by local officials. And this was enshrined in Supreme Court rulings uh, by the 1870s. Thus, there were strong protections against public officials intercepting and reading private mail, which was a common practice in other countries. And besides public education and the post office, the government in the United States was relatively weak and small. And it was weak and small because most people wanted it that way. Perhaps no department was smaller or weaker than the one responsible for negotiating with the outside world, the State Department. The State Department was tiny. And throughout the 19th century, American consuls and ministers, like local postmasters, were appointed through patronage and nepotism. It was almost impossible to build a career as a diplomat. Instead, most pursued these kinds of posts after an election brought a friend to power because they were profitable, and the competition could be fierce. In 1882, uh, one disgruntled applicant for the position of consul general in Paris decided to take matters into his own hands. Um, well, we skipped over Ben Franklin. Um, this man decided to shoot the president <laughs> when he didn't receive the post that, that he wanted. And it's not as if, and James Garfield subsequently died, um, though that's another story. But it's not as if uh, the people who were appointed as consuls and ministers and eventually ambassadors were much better. They tended to be party hacks and bribe takers if they were not actually imbeciles or insane. Now, just a few years earlier, the U.S. consul in Ecuador had publicly urged annexation, and he attempted to assassinate the British ambassador. The U.S. minister in Tokyo liked to ride a carriage around town at high speed, fondling a pistol and cracking a whip at startled pedestrians. A whole series of U.S. representatives to Rio de Janeiro were so crooked that Congress finally had to indemnify Brazil from the U.S. Treasury. Now, with material like this, it should be no surprise that U.S. representatives and public officials frequently leaked information, including highly sensitive information, to legislators, to the press, to private businessmen, and even to foreigners. Now, what made the early republic radically transparent was not that the executive did not try to keep secrets, but rather that they so often failed. Now, compare this, say, to the, I don't know, British Foreign Office. The British Foreign Office prized trustworthiness above all. It was staffed by, yes, a small, not much bigger than the American State Department, a small but self-replicating elite, one that was drawn from the same families, generation after generation. And a guaranteed annual income from landed property was a qualification, actually it was a prerequisite for service. 
Even as late as the early 20th century, some two-thirds of entrants to the British Foreign Service were old Etonians. The education emphasized character more than brains. They took on a corporate identity to the extent that even contemporaries talked of the official mind, a mind that seemed all but impenetrable to outsiders. And in this way, British diplomats were characteristic of the, of the diplomatic system of the time. That is, other countries across Europe had a professional diplomatic service with similar standards of education, similar experiences, and sometimes the same experiences, since they tended to serve over many years in the same capitals. They developed a corporate identity that went even above and beyond their identity as representatives of their own countries. That is, a representative of the diplomatic community, right? One of the core values of this system was secrecy, the ability to conduct negotiations and not uh, leak secrets, certainly not to the press or the public. The British foreign, British foreign policy was actually, compared to other countries, relatively open since the time of Canning. It was actually less secret than its European counterparts. And in Britain, there was a tradition of publishing blue books, um, just as there was a tradition in the United States of publishing diplomatic documents. But by the mid-19th century, Britain was on a completely different trajectory. In the United States, during the Civil War, fighting for its life, Abraham Lincoln decided that the U.S. was going to publish its diplomacy, the vast majority of it. In Lincoln's very first message to Congress, he regularized and expanded this long-standing tradition of printing dispatches between Washington and embassies and consulates around the world. But now the public didn't have to wait for years to read these papers. Sometimes they would be published months or even weeks after they were first dispatched. This is 150 years before WikiLeaks. People were reading these kinds of documents almost contemporaneously. And when the minister in London, Charles Francis Adams, the son and grandson of presidents, when he complained that it would cause embarrassment to him with his counterparts in London, Secretary of State William Seward had to remind him of this founding principle. The government continually depends upon the support of Congress and the people and that support can be expected only in the condition of keeping them thoroughly and truthfully informed of the manner in which the powers derived from them are executed. Thus, Lincoln and Seward conducted a foreign policy that was largely an open book, quite literally, a book that was printed and distributed every year in the thousands, free of charge. Now, this was partly because he judged that the citizens of the republic and their elected representatives deserved no less, partly because the example would attract support for the union from freedom-loving peoples elsewhere, and not least because he believed that he owed it to future generations to record this history. Now, in Britain, on the other hand, the tradition of publishing diplomatic correspondence in blue books, already fiercely resisted in the foreign office, entered a long decline after 1865. More and more, the Foreign Office selected documents in a way that would conceal matters that might occasion public controversy. As Parliament became more democratic, its control over foreign policy waned and diminished. And this secrecy, this secrecy about secrecy, was part of a broader trend that extended across Europe. As early as 1844, Joseph Mazzini offered this observation. He was living in exile in London at the time. And he was keenly aware of trends there. 
He said, quote, the anxiety for secrecy on the part of public officers is a growing evil. In the customs, in the stamp office, in various government departments, we hear now of clerks sworn to secrecy, are told by their superiors that if they communicate to the public any information connected with the business of the office, they will be instantly dismissed. Why? Who are these men who treat as enemies their fellow subjects of the realm? Is it their business to prey upon the public or to serve it? Now, ironically, and as, as David Vincent has written in his work on official secrecy in Britain, one of the main reasons why officials uh, were creating what would one day be called Big Brother is because they were afraid of big data. Big data in the form of newspapers and correspondence. Because in Britain, like in the United States, though a few decades later, public education, cheap distribution of newspapers, and the penny post was leading to an exponential growth in the amount of information that was flowing through the body politic. Now, all this led to exponentially more correspondence for government officials. So in the 1830s, Palmerston had personally dealt with every letter that was addressed to the Foreign Office. By the second half of the 19th century, by contrast, there was a growing core of clerks with typewriters, making it impossible for senior officials to control or even contract, keep track of all of the information. Now, just as nowadays cabinet ministers and corporate chief information officers worry about the next Chelsea Manning or the next Edward Snowden. So too in the 19th century did British ministers and permanent undersecretaries worry about the anonymous clerk with access to a filing cabinet, a typewriter, and carbon paper. When in 1878 one of these clerks leaked the contents of a secret Anglo-Russian treaty and it was published in the Globe, it prompted the government to seek passage of the first Official Secrets Act. It was quietly passed at an opportune moment, by common consent and with almost no parliamentary debate, all the better to avoid any reporting in the newspapers. This was the first such act in Britain, but it was the first of several Official Secrets Act in Europe. Other countries like France, Germany, Italy, and Austria-Hungary had already passed similar measures. And with more secrecy, there were more secret treaties, to an extent that shocked and outraged the public when Leon Trotsky finally revealed them to the world starting in 1917. So when Woodrow Wilson delivered his answer, announcing American aims in World War I, the very first of his 14 points called for open covenants of peace openly arrived at. Diplomacy, Wilson said, shall proceed always frankly and in the public view. And Wilson himself soon realized that this was impractical. Even Mazzini had thought that diplomacy had to be secret. Mazzini called it a refined form of modern warfare. But Wilson was tapping into a very deep, if complex, American tradition. The radical tendency to make government transparent, or at least to empower people to obtain the information they needed to keep government accountable. Now, to be sure, the motives were often mixed, Information was given away to make the opposing party accountable. American government was transparent in part because of its expansionary motives. They were, they were quite transparent to the rest of the world. And the United States government was permeable because so many officials moved in and out of government in pursuit of personal profit. But I think that looking back 
If we can see these things now, in part because this same government did preserve papers that allow us to, uh, to record this history, if we can look back right, and take a step back, I think I, anyway, keep coming back to what Madison said. What it all comes down to is that people have to arm themselves with the strength that knowledge provides. This, I think, was the real radicalism of the American Republic in this period. And it's something I think that is still too often uh, forgotten today. So I'm looking forward to your questions, and I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Matt. It was an excellent, an excellent start to this, to this series. Very uh, concise, very provocative, and giving the historical background for much of the discussion that we are having today about official secrecy and about freedom of information. I just wanted to kick off with a question which is really in a comparative sense about states and about states' longevity and how this contributes to official secrecy. Because it's always struck me that it is the states that have been around for the longest time that seem to produce the highest levels of secrecy. My favorite example is Choson Korea, which produced laws that were so draconic in terms of anyone uh, in, in any form giving away uh, official secrets, that secrets were even kept within ministries from each other, uh, leading, I think, when you get, certainly when you get to the 18th century, not to mention the 19th century, to complete dysfunctionality in terms of how ministries and how branches of government communicated with each other. On the other hand, as you yourself said in the lecture, it is very often when there is a revolutionary break that information is made public. 1917 in Russia, the radicalism of the early American Republic with regard to this. Um, I remember being in Moscow during the coup, uh, the coup attempt in, in 1991 and seeing how quickly information started to be made available after the, or as the Soviet state um, was collapsing only for a new government when it got in place to start to clamp down on this. So do you think there is a point here in terms of how states develop? It might not, at least exclusively, be about governance, uh, that it might be about laws, that it's something more barbarian in a sense. It has to do with the development of bureaucracies and bureaucracies' inherent preoccupation with keeping secrets, including from branches uh, within government itself. You know, Arna, I can't help but thinking of that time when you and I were um, negotiating a treaty between LSE and, and Columbia. <laughs> and as it difficult out, thing to do. It was very difficult yeah. because it was two nations and two legal systems. And in the end, I got confused. Was it like American law and English courts or English law and American courts? You know, we're, we're, This is how we were going to work out any kinds of um, border disputes that occurred. <laughs> um, and what, what was striking to me was how it is that it was actually much harder on the Columbia side of it. And until somebody explained this to me, they pointed out that Colombia is older than the United States of America. <laughs> it dates to 1754. You know, so it has this kind of bureaucracy that has become, yes, like kind of encrusted with like layers of barnacles, you know, and, um, and can be very hard to navigate and negotiate with. Um, but more generally, um, I mean, I am struck that uh, if you look, for instance, at the history of reform efforts in the United States, um, you know, generation after generation, we've had presidents who've promised, you know, to fix this broken system, um, but they almost always uh, 
call for the same set of measures. Uh, and it sounds like reform. So, for instance, when Obama became uh, president in 2009, he said this is going to be the most mm. transparent administration mm. ever. Um, he began by, by you know, stipulating that fewer people were going to have uh, the ability to create secrets, that is, original classification authority. Um, he also said that uh, less information was going to be classified as top secret, so they're going to try to reduce the amount of like, top secret information. Um, he also said that they had to get serious about automatic declassification, right? The things from the Cold War, you know, there was no point in keeping them a secret still. But what was interesting about it was that Richard Nixon had virtually the same package of reforms <laughs> um, with virtually the same you know, measures and, and you know, the same claims you know, to uh, wanting to be a more transparent president. Um, and what I came to realize is that there is a kind of logic to official secrecy. Uh, it's something you could read if you read Daniel Patrick Moynihan's book um, on secrecy. And he points out that secrecy is a kind of currency. Uh, so in government, you know, if you can't actually bribe one another, what you can do is you trade information, hmm. right? I'll give you information if you give me your information. And it's within the U.S. government, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, the example you gave. I mean, in the hmm. U.S. government, you have to be read into certain programs. You might have a top secret clearance, but that doesn't mean you can see every kind of top secret hmm. information. Somebody has to read you into that hmm. program to get access to it. And this is how, you know, government officials, um, you know, advance themselves, hmm. um, and do their jobs, to be fair. In many cases, you know, they have to do this kind of negotiation just to do their work. Um, so what, what do you think of all this if you're at the top of this pyramid? Well, it means that there is all this trading going on that you can't really control. Um, and the people who are trading things have every incentive to create more secrets, hmm. right, and at a higher classification level. And so secrecy, if it's a kind of currency, it becomes debased. It starts to lose its value. And the people at the top start to lose control you know, of this information and assessing what's valuable and what isn't, and con controlling what, what they deem to be truly secret. So that's why I think these reforms tend to take on the same character, and that's why I think they're so ineffectual. Um, and I, I do start to think you know, that the United States, uh, I don't see any real improvement. I, I'm quite worried, actually, that even with a president who I really believe did have good intentions, you know, mm -hmm. finds himself to be totally ineffectual in trying to reform official secrecy in the U.S. So I think it's quite possible that the longer institutions are, um, are, are established um, and the less radical are the, um, the, the changes uh, to those institutions, the more likely it is that we're going to have more of the same. Hmm. Which is, by the way, Monian's conclusion in his book as well, which is a book I would strongly recommend on secrecy, in which he says that the longer a state is in existence or institutions are in existence, the more pressure is needed from below in order to break out of a methodic approach to increasing secrecy for every cycle of elections. Mm -hmm. Other questions? We'll take two at a time, if that's all right with, mm -hmm. with you, Matt. Yeah. Valeska. Thank you very much for a very interesting um, lecture, and I also have a comparative question, but taking the other angle of your lecture, coming back to the medicine, um, Madison quote, uh, where, um, where you said people have to arm themselves with the power of knowledge, and I was wondering whether you think this is a particularly American approach, this um, emphasis on literacy, on making um, people knowledgeable in the very broad sense of term. I mean, this is something that then in later centuries happens in Russia with literacy campaigns, happens in the post-colonial moment if we look at Egypt and mass education. So I was wondering, and maybe that also comes back to the broader question I had um, 
uh, when I listened to your talk, the connection between information in this sense, connected to the Madison quote, and secrecy in the other sense. I mean, they can perfectly well coexist. Mm. Excellent. Thank the, you. The last, uh, can you just say the last thing again? I lost Well, the, I was the, wondering yeah. because information yeah. is such uh-huh. a broad term. Right. Um, so you can perfectly well have mass education campaigns, right. for instance, yeah. or information campaigns, mm-hmm. but also have um, top secrecy at, right. at diplomatic okay. levels. Right. Sure. Thanks. Thank you. Could we take another one? There's one back there, fourth row in. Yep. Uh, hi, Matt. My name is Charlie Beckett. I run the LSE's um, journalism think tank, Polis. Um, in the, the sort of poor lighting we've got here, occasionally you, you looked very similar to Mr. Glenn Greenwald. Um, and I just wondered, when you talk about literacy uh, and so on and the idea of people sort of rising up through knowledge, I wonder how far you'd go, perhaps historically or personally, to uh, sympathise or characterise uh, the approach that Greenwald and, of course, Snowden and even Assange have taken to trying to disrupt uh, secrecy. Thanks, Charlie. Okay. Matt? Um, okay, so the first question, it's an excellent question. Like, in what ways was the U.S. actually different? I would just argue that the, the, uh, the U.S. was first. Um, and I always hesitate to say that. Historians are always going to find you know, precursors and precedents and so on. But it does seem to me you know, that by the standards of the 18th and early 19th century, I, I mean, apparently, this is not my specialty, but apparently the rates of literacy in the U.S., the only place it was comparable was Scotland. Um, in part, it was from the same reason, you know, the fact that people wanted to read the Bible. Uh, and that's why there was uh, such a strong injunction. It was, it was more religious even than political, but it made it possible for people to participate in politics in a way they couldn't before. Um, and similarly, I think the U.S. was precocious in, in setting up public schools uh, and, and public universities, in part because of the federal system, you know, the fact that uh, states, different states could experiment, right? And so some states were more precocious than others. Uh, but these kinds of experiments started to replicate each other. Um, so that, that's what I would say. I mean, it's definitely the case, you know, that you find, you know, others uh, you're looking at literacy and looking at schools, you know, as a way in which you, you can empower people. And also, you know, obviously there are ways of training your workforce, ways of, you know, turning peasants into Frenchmen. <laughs> so there are many things you can do with, say again? Yes, that's right. Hmm. Um, though what happens like in France when all your teachers are communists, right? I mean, so, so the education doesn't always, as you well know, doesn't always turn out the way you think. Certainly we know that, right? <laughs> good example. <laughs> Our students are constantly rebelling against this, um, all to the good. Um, so this question about, well, you could have mass literacy and you can still have like a, a national security state. Absolutely. But I think it does require a certain amount of, uh, of indifference. Um, I, I remember <clears throat> um, just recently I've been writing this piece about what I think is a true crisis at the National Archives that is, is underfunded and increasingly overwhelmed by the, the tasks that they face, which I've come to learn is true in, in the U.K. as well. There's just a massive backlog uh, because of underfunding of, of uh, files, you know, that in some cases are just rotting away. Um, and somebody reading what I'd written about it said, you know, the real scandal here is how little interest people are taking in history. Like, we have these archives and they're so little used, you know. Um, you know, I'm sure people line up and they look at the Constitution, et cetera. But, um, but you know, they're preaching to the converted when they're telling me, and I, because I believe it, right, that uh, people really could arm themselves, you know, if they had better knowledge of, of their history. Um, so, uh, and certainly people are taking matters into their own hands when it comes to Edward Snowden and, and Glenn Greenwald. Um, so, uh, 
just recently, a Princeton professor published a book that I haven't read yet, uh, <laughs> but he outlines criteria by which we can evaluate um, leaks and whether we would find them uh, you know, ethical for the individual and, and politically um, necessary for, for the republic. And you know, the, I have to say that many of the criteria were met you know, in the case of Edward Snowden. I mean, this, I think, was someone who had become profoundly disillusioned when the Obama administration turned out, you know, to be betraying many of the promises that were made, you know, people who tried to blow whistles, you know, ended up having their careers ruined. Um, you know, the things that he was bringing to light were things that were, were obviously important, and there was probably no other way of, of doing it otherwise. And, and you know, the proof was when the um, the Obama administration, Obama himself ended up saying, it's good that we're having this debate. It's good that we're having this debate. Well, yes, right? I mean, why didn't we have that debate before? Um, I'm with a, a law professor, actually. Uh, I didn't mean to be harsh on the law professors, but they do some of the best work. There are work some here, I'm sure. There are? Okay. But there's a very good um, uh, legal scholar, let's call them, uh, at, at uh, Columbia named David Posen, who's been doing really interesting works on, on leaking and secrecy more generally. And he's trying to, uh, and I was really kind of drawing from his work and talking about radical secrecy. He would call it deep secrecy, secrecy about secrecy. So we don't know what we don't know. Um, and my position would be that uh, we don't need to know every detail of every covert operation, um, but we do need to know in broad brushstrokes what are the major policies being pursued by our government. Um, you know, after all, we're going to be paying for them, sometimes literally, for decades to come. So we need to know, for instance, if they've made major policy shifts in terms of the kinds of information that they're intercepting and, and the ways in which they're planning to use it. We don't have to know how all the algorithms work, right? Um, so, so that would be the argument I would make, is that we can have you know, an effective, robust intelligence and even surveillance capability, uh, but we can also have democratic accountability. You know, if, but that means that we can't have you know, secrets about secrets. We can't have radical or deep secrecy. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Let's take two more questions. Yes, lady on the second row. Ankita. Yeah. Hey. Right in front of me. If you could just pause it, pause it long. Yeah. Ankita, one of the students doing fantastic work in this course I'm teaching where the historians are teaming up with the data scientists to try to um, see what we can learn from data mining declassified documents. So take it away, Ankita. Fantastic. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> um, I have like really basic questions, nothing very fancy. Um, so uh, we are aware that there has been a filtering of information. So um, I want to know who does this because are they qualified enough to know what should be kept as a secret? Because a lot of information isn't exactly lethal. So how do we overcome this thin line of you know distinction and non-distinction with the government? And my second question is also really basic. So um, uh, back in the 17th century, when the government released all the unclassified documents, how did the people access them? Because they couldn't be brought out in the newspapers. Hmm. Did they have to walk into the State Department to access the documents? Okay. Great question. Yeah, thanks. Others sitting back there. Yeah, that's the best way of doing it. By cooperation, right. Anders. Um, you're sitting underneath the sign of diplomacy and strategy, but I heard very little about security and the issue of security. And I mean, traditionally, secrecy was attached to the two branches of the uh, state that were engaged in external relations, and therefore 
diplomacy, strategy, and military affairs, vis tactics and strategy, actually, vis-a-vis -vis somebody else. Now, if you're going to engage in that sort of thing, you can't put a premium on openness and transparency. If you take a, an example close to hand, namely the Swedes, you will find that there is a perfect transparency when it comes to public documents across the board, except when they deal with security and when they deal with external affairs. That's actually a transparency that the EU is doing its best to subvert at the present time. Nevertheless, it's a couple of centuries old. So I was, I was surprised, Matt, that you didn't say anything about um, you know, the classical raison d'etat issue. Right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, first for the Akita's questions, uh, excellent questions. Um, it's, it's actually, to me, it was quite interesting to find out that it's, in the United States anyway, mainly retired Foreign Service officers and CIA officers, you know, people, retirees from these different departments and agencies who will do the job of reading documents and deciding what to redact and so on. Um, so this is, uh, you know, in some cases, those documents go right up you know, to the top, you know, of some departments and agencies. But more typically, the people who are actually going through them are these people who, you know, are doing it uh, after many years of, of working in the field. And they're using um, manuals that are meant to guide them in terms of, of what it is is supposed to be redacted or not, um, and what's supposed to be released and what isn't. But um, anecdotally, you know, uh, I know people uh, like Nick Collider at University of Indiana who worked for the CIA and then became an historian, or actually was an historian working for the CIA. Right. And he would talk to these people about how they were redacting his history <laughs> of the CIA in Central America. And he, he asked them, well, why did you redact this part? And they'd say, well, it just doesn't look right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of like independent judgment by, by these individuals, um, which is a... <laughs> In a way, a problem, but it's also an opportunity. So the problem is that um, that there are you know mandates, right? Um, there are guidelines. Uh, every uh, president, practically every president, has issued an executive order that lays out the criteria according to which information can be withheld. Um, and at least some redactions will sometimes have a little notation as to what specific provision of that executive order they're, they're using. Um, but uh, anecdotally, and I hope soon systematically, um, it's clear that people are disregarding that kind of guidance. Um, so the, a famous example is when uh, they redacted Henry Kissinger's me memorandum of his telephone conversations. Every time he calls somebody a son of a bitch, apparently it was a threat to national security. You know, so they're <laughs> so, um, so that, that, on the other hand, is an opportunity, though, because different officials oftentimes looking at the same document, if there's carbon copies, more than one copy in different departments and agencies, they'll redact differently. So that is a big opportunity you know, for historians and data scientists. Historians have been doing this in a piecemeal way for a long time, trying to find that matching document with a different redaction or no redaction. But now we can do this at scale. Um, so the people I'm working with, we've found like 7,000 examples of redacted and unredacted text. So with that kind of data, you can start to you know, make out the sort of patterns in what's redacted. Now, the hope was that we could come up with more automated means to help government officials do their job more efficiently when they're dealing with 2 billion email. That's how many email the State Department is producing every year now. So how are they possibly going to do this with retired people um, from the CIA and the State Department? So we're hoping to come up with automated means. But it may be that secrecy is unpredictable. It may be that it's going to be very hard to find a pattern that can be replicated. 
Um, okay, so how to... Oh, by the way, I, you know, it's not just national security information. A big reason why so much is being withheld is personal information. Um, and recently I came across an advertisement for somebody to work uh, for a private contractor. This job is often contracted out, like so much other government work in the U.S. now. And it said that the person they needed in order to go through documents to find whether there was personal information that needed to be withheld only needed a high school education. <laughs> it was going to be paid $10 an hour. And <laughs> so it made me a little bit worried, you know, as to, like, how these decisions are getting made about, you know, our patrimony and you know, things like our democracy. Um, so uh, in terms of how people had access to it, so they, you know, printed out, like Foreign Relations in the United States, I think they printed out like 10,000 copies of it. It was distributed free. You know, so oftentimes like congressmen, for instance, using their franking privilege, you know, would, would send them to constituents, like anybody who wanted it. Uh, it would be sent to libraries, you know, when there were public libraries. Um, they, they would be distributed basically to ever wanted them, right? And mm. state papers uh, were published even earlier. Um, and in part, this is, you know, kind of for-profit, right? And so there's a contract, a, a printer that had a cozy contract to publish state papers. But that was good, right? Because they tried to publish as many as they could, you know, and, and make them as widely available and get the biggest subsidy possible from Congress so as to distribute everywhere they uh, distribute these papers everywhere they could. Um, so you'd be surprised. I mean, it was mainly because it was heavily subsidized that it, it came to be available in so many places. Um, okay, so uh, Andres' question, like, why did I ignore the, the Army and the Navy? Um, I, I thought some people anyway were kind of shifting uncomfortably in their seat when I got to 45 minutes, and I just thought I, I'd bitten off enough. That, that's Maybe I could have taken a little time to talk about that, but one thing I tried to do is point out how even in times of national danger, you know, during the revolution, um, you know, that, that time and again, it was the case that people at least would pay lip service to transparency. Uh, so I make that point just because it's so often the case that people do invoke national security, terrorism, et cetera, as reasons why we can't um, honor these kinds of principles. So I, I think it's important to point out, you know, somebody like Madison who had to flee for his life um, was also somebody who would defend uh, these, these principles. Um, now, that didn't mean that they were going to publish, you know, kind of order of battle, right, and, and everything else about um, how American troops were deployed and, and, uh, and so on. Um, and so there were well-known exceptions to the kinds of information um, that would be withheld. And that kind of information, to my knowledge, was never controversial. Um, you know, so there's certain kinds of information, uh, like ongoing diplomatic negotiations. Sometimes Congress would ask for these things, but usually they took no for an answer. Um, so it was other kinds of information that tend to be more controversial. But I could be wrong about that. I'm happy to talk about it with you. Who else would also like to ask a question? Yes, gentleman at the back over there first. Please. Um, yeah, a, a great talk, and thank you very much. My name is Peter, and uh, I'm a rather old student here. Um, I like your views on current um, trends by individuals in democracies against what uh, is perceived as um, abuse of, of information, not just by government, but obviously hackers, uh, other malcontents that can get to your personal information that's created almost a, a climate of paranoia. 
Uh, my specific question relates to the uh, exponential explosion in um, technologies that back up cryptocurrencies hmm. uh, that are now being used uh, for commercial purposes where individuals literally are sending cryptographed messages back and forth on a peer-to-peer system, um, and how governments are going to be able to control the, these kinds of communications, which may have had their origins in nefarious activities, but now are becoming widely adopted by businesses because no one trusts the integrity of uh, current systems. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Let me have a question on the first row over here. Thank you. Gentleman in the front here. Uh, you spoke about the British Foreign Office in the 19th century, and then you also spoke about uh, sort of the importance of uh, uh, sort of security matters uh, and the issue of secrecy there. There are examples of secrets uh, undertaken by the British Foreign Office in Ireland in sort of the 1890s under Balfour's role as uh, Irish Secretary that are secret in perpetuity. Do you think any government secret should ever be secret in perpetuity? Hmm. Okay, thanks. Um, All right, let's do one more. Sure. Let's okay. do one more. Is that right? Yeah. Gentleman here has been waiting to speak for some time. Please, keep it brief. In the context, in the context of uh, investigative journalism, you know, with the demise of printed journalism to be replaced by what we see now on the Internet, and, web, and there's just multifarious websites, do you think that... Um, that even with the, the, the horrendous growth of secrecies, there's more now scope for disclosure and whistleblowing. Thanks. Matt. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought one of the, I don't know if it's going to answer your question exactly, Peter, but I'm just an observation on my part, since I'm by no means, you know, uh, like, um, you know, an expert in cryptography. Um, that is that if you think of even from the point of view of uh, the United States government, um, you think about like what we gained and what we lost from programs like PRISM. Um, you know, it's still the case that I don't think the NSA has really pr- been able to provide any examples you know, of how it is they were able to actually foil like real plots and so yeah. on. And on the other hand, like we lost apparently this amazing tool. Um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, intelligence assets that were lost because of uh, the Snowden revelation. So I believe them when they say this, right? Because, I mean, many people now are encrypting their communications. You know, they're taking other countermeasures to try to avoid this. Um, In part, you know, just by not buying into the American IT sector for things like social media, Mm. um, which is also, by the way, like a body blow to the American economy. Mm. Like, if you're thinking of that, if you're a government and you're concerned about that, maybe you'd think of that, too. Um, so I think that it was just, you know, one of, of several huge um, uh, losses, you know, to the U.S. Um, for undertaking these kinds of programs uh, with, with no real accountability and no effort to inform the public. I think it, it actually does, like, potentially make the U.S. less safe than it was. It certainly deprives the U.S. government of assets that it had before and no longer has. Um, and I also think it was quite detrimental to the American economy. Um, so um, in, in terms of like whether uh, there should be any government secrets that would survive in perpetuity, I gave a couple of examples. I think they're pretty, maybe they're easy examples, but like I don't see the need why we should ever make available sniper manuals or uh, instructions on how to create explosives. I just don't know why that would ever be 
important or helpful for people if, who didn't want to hurt other people. Um, so, so there are certain things I think really do have to be kept secret and guarded closely. Uh, I just can't imagine why it is that there's anything the British were up to in the 1890s in Ireland that has to be protected even now. I, I mean, if you talk to journalists, in some ways, you know, it's, it's a fair criticism. Journalists want to have it both ways, right? They want to protect their sources, um, but they, they don't want the government to protect its sources, like intelligence sources. But even journalists, like, um, you know, for instance, um, uh, you know, even um, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, said that they would reveal the identity of Deep Throat uh, once they could, like once this person passed away or once it became impossible to protect their identity. So I think most people, like even journalists who like closely guard their sources, would recognize at a certain point, you know, it's, they belong to history, you know. Um, and so as an historian, that's how I feel. Sure. Um, so uh, the last question was about, um, it's about disclosure. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually struggling now. Do you remember exactly what the question was? One more question. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it easier now? Yeah. Is it easier to, to get under the, get under the, uh, the carpet? Yeah. Ah, well, journalists, I'm so glad you asked that. Journalists, I think, are decades ahead of historians. You know, it's often said that journalism is the first draft of history. So they're trying methods now that historians have only begun to think about, really. Um, but one reason why they're trying to do this kind of data-driven journalism, I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to answer it, but then I'll come back to it. But one reason is because they can no longer afford to do the usual kind of investigative uh, reporting. Is that there just aren't nearly as many journalists like on the beat, you know, who have like the beat of the the city council or whatever, where they can go to all those meetings, you know, over many years and start to know what's really going on. Um, and so uh, more reporters now are trying to use what other tools are at hand. And so if you if you have to be sitting at your desk and at your computer and you have to do most of your work with the computer or over the phone, there are things you can do with data. Um, and so there are certain opportunities, and some journalists uh, are taking advantage of it. And I think The Guardian, you know, is kind of an example to the world, you know, in terms of what they've been able to do with, with data. Um, but I think it's second best. I think we'd be better off if we had actual, you know, investigative reporters, you know, on beats, you know, doing that kind of reporting over the years. And then we also had, you know, the tools that we will have from, from data mining, you know, to, to find um, other kinds of stories. So. Now, the next lecture, as I mentioned when we started up, is on Tuesday, 2nd of December, when Matt will be speaking on open government in the age of total war. So you can see that there is a development in terms of the historical argument here, but I'm sure much of our discussion is not going to be just about history. It's going to be a contemporary affairs as well. Uh, let me thank you for a wonderful opening lecture in this series, Matt. We're much looking forward to the, to the rest of them. I hope you'll all come back on December 2nd for the second lecture in the series. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for your questions. Thank you.